ops, and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and joined by me, or joined, yeah, joined with me, here with me, here with me, as almost always. You haven't missed a show lately, man. Good job. It's Jason. I are, I are like English. You are like English. Yeah. I, I are like English. English English are good. Speak, speak it, speak it, speak it goodly. It's been a rough night. It's been... <laughs> uh, we're running late because I ordered food through DoorDash, and then for some reason it took them two hours to get it here, which was kind of annoying. I still didn't get to eat. Well, see, Nate, the problem is that the place that you ordered the food from is so incredibly distant from your house. Yeah. That it just took, it took, that's all driving time. I, I could have walked to the place, ordered it, waited for it to be made, and walked it home faster than DoorDash. <laughs> I should have just the done that. that. The, the driver that DoorDash chose to pick up your order and deliver it to you is from three towns over. So. Yeah. He may have delivered it on a donkey or something. No, I think a donkey would have been faster. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, you know, it's like first world problems, right? The, the the place is close, but it's like miserable and rainy outside, and I had a show to prepare for. So instead of thinking about food, I just ordered it through my phone and figured it would be here in time. Nope. <laughs> that DoorDash guy taught you a lesson, didn't he? Yep, I learned her, a valuable lesson day, today. Yeah, I, I believe his name was Chris. Although, who knows? Can we assume Chris is a he? Their name was Chris. How's that? <laughs> that works. Um, yeah, they, they, they taught you a lesson. Oh, I see. going to get DoorDash because it's rainy and crappy out. Well, yeah, well, it's rainy uh, and crappy for us, too. So you're going to wait. <laughs> anyway. I hope you tipped well. Oh, wait. Let's see. How does that work? It's rainy and crappy out, so tip goes up. But it took disturbingly long to get the food. I tipped whatever DoorDash built into the tip, which was good. not a ton of money. It might have been 10%. And then DoorDash must get a cut of that because I think it's more expensive when I order through DoorDash. Next time, I'm just going to yes. call the damn place and then get on my own donkey and ride down and pick it up. <laughs> Something's binging. Yep, yep. Um, so you're, you're. I mean, we're, we're not to the section where you start talking about things, but apparently you're getting a donkey. Let me put that in the notes for you. Yeah, I'm going to have to get a donkey. Can, can someone tell me where to get a donkey somewhere in the United States? A rideable donkey. It has to be one that I can actually ride. Otherwise, it's just going to be... A lot of extra work. <laughs> All right. So tonight we're not talking about DoorDash or donkeys, although maybe we could have a show about DoorDash and services like DoorDash. I don't know if that really fits into our usual thing. Maybe the technology behind them. It is kind of neat, right? But I don't want to get too distracted because we're talking about something that maybe DoorDash utilizes to make their services work. Microservices and a few other related things that Jason has thrown in here, like service discovery and service mesh. Although there's a question yep. mark after that. <laughs> uh, so we've been on this little uh, journey of uh, talking about cloudy things. We talked about a cloud, a bunch of cloud terminology in episode, I think it was 125. Uh, 126, we talked about uh, lift and shift and running, you know, like your bulky fat applications on a cloud provider and why you might do that, and maybe why you shouldn't do that. And today we're going to talk about one of the things you're going to have to learn, I suppose, if you're going to really, truly cloud-nativize your applications or write applications that are meant to be cloud-native, uh, and that's microservices, right? So we touched on microservices a bit in our, our uh, cloud sort of uh, terminology episode, uh, but today we're going to dive a little bit deeper. So... Um, I've been talking a lot already. Jason, you want to tell us what a microservice is? Yeah, uh, just like it says in the name, it's a tiny service. And that's our show, folks. So We're done. Uh, Bye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tiny service. I mean, I'm not sure how else to really, without going into super detail, which we will, but yeah. um, it's, it's a small service. So, um, you know, if you think of... Oh, I don't know. Any any sort of web system, uh, web, you know, like say DoorDash, um, you know, you think of what that is and how it works. Um, you know, the only thing that you as a as a consumer really interact with is the is the app or the 
the the front end, whatever that happens to be. But on the back end is a bunch of stuff that happens. Yeah. Um, and and it, it can all be broken down into services. You need something that sends the order to whatever place you're ordering from. Uh, you need something that's that stores the the order in a database. You need something that sends the message to whatever driver or whatever they're called um, uh, slave that they're using. Um, you need uh, you need services to create reports for stuff and to to do charge like all of those different things. If you take any complex system and break it down into its individual services, a microservice is an implementation of one of those services. Right. So um, you've, if you've ever heard the term monolith, right? Uh, yes. Not not in the reference of the science fiction story, um, or you know, it's like the definition of the word monolith. But in, in an IT perspective, Monolith is, you know, an application that takes all of those pieces, right, that Jason just talked about. Imagine that DoorDash were a Monolith application. Uh, all those pieces would be written into one block, of one chunk of code, one big application that did all the things. Right. Right. A microservice takes all those and breaks them into smaller pieces and then separates them. And then they have to be able to talk to each other. Right. So, right. um I guess this is a really logical transition into why the hell would I do that? Yeah. So I, I, I guess, a, you, you know, you start with your monoliths that are just everything stuffed into one and you have this problem of, okay, cool. Uh, we've got all this working and now I want to change what the website looks like. Crap. Now I need to go in. I need to make all those changes. I need to recompile that application. I need to redeploy the entire application um, you know, you have to test end to end every single possible iteration of everything uh, to make sure that it all works yep. uh, and it works the same way. And then you can deploy it. And that takes a lot of time. Um, and then God forbid you miss something, right? Because something right. didn't get tested right, makes it into prod, doesn't work properly. Now you got to do the whole process again to fix that. Except now you're, there's the stress of getting it done quickly <laughs> because right. production is broken. <laughs> right. So then, then they started getting into modular programming, which was it, it's still one large program that runs, but you've broken things into modules um, that can be sort of added and removed. And if you modify a module, you don't necessarily mess with the rest of the system. Um, and and you know a lot of systems have changed and moved in that direction. Uh, kernels in uh, operating systems are generally modular now. So you can add and remove drivers without having to recompile the right. entire operating system. Uh, so it's 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 key to a lot of things. Um, but you, you'll still find modular and, and monolithic systems out there. And then the microservice revolution sort of really started with um, the ability to spin up individual servers easily, and you know, and not having to, you know, not not really having to purchase a ton of, of iron all over the place to run your individual services. Um, virtualization helped a lot with this. Containerization has taken it even further. Yep. Um, and then if you believe in serverless, uh, quote unquote serverless, uh, that takes it even further. So you can break these things down into individual parts. Wait, well, are um, and you why suggesting there's still a server in play when there's serverless? But it's in the name. No, of course yeah no yeah yeah it's uh just like wireless uh just like wireless you know. <laughs> yep uh so so now we've hit the point where we're building ever more complex systems um that mm -hmm. are just absolutely massive and you have hundreds and sometimes thousands of programmers and de like developers that are working on these things right and having a single and, and I'm sure there's people out there who are going to argue with this, but having a single code base that everybody is working on at the same time can cause problems. Um, yep. It's it's potentially manageable, um, but like the larger the project, I mean, you, you're going to have more. You're going to end up with more project managers and yeah, and, and yeah, more you know, other personnel than you're going to need for more, the actual developers. More hands on the project mean more coordination in order to make sure that one developer is not stepping on another, make sure that, I mean, heck, just being able to merge your code, right, means that, oh, yeah. if I bring in my code and, you know, this other thing is calling my function that I worked on, um, does that still work the same way? Does the input and output still work the way it's supposed to? What if, 
you know, did I extend it or did I replace it? You know, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, and um, and and there are there are positions that do this. Build engineers are are kind of the big one. They're they're the ones that are there, and their job is to make sure that the builds work, make sure merges happen, make sure the build system is running, make sure that the builds that are coming out are building all the like, you know, it gets very very complex. Um, and that's not to say that using microservices is going to make all that go away, uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, why you would want to use microservices, um, at least you know. And there's lots of opinions on this, of course. Um, mine is the most important, so we'll talk about that one. Oh, good. Well, um, you're here on the show. Everyone else isn't. Yeah. Yep, yep. So <laughs> uh, so microservices can make, from a code perspective, a microservice can be significantly less complex. So um, if you think about it from, if you think about how a, a monolithic program is sort of written, you know, you have to take all every single call and, uh, you know, if you're calling this service or that service or you need information from over here or over there, all of that has to be built in and written in and you have to know where it's coming from and make those calls and, and sort of manage all that yourself. Um, you still do that to some degree, um, but it's it's much more standardized if, if you do it the right way. It's much more standardized when you deal with microservices because now you set up just an API interface for each of your services. Um, and you use that API from whoever needs to call it. So uh, you may have, you know, service A that calls B, C, and D. And then right. you have service B that calls E, F, and H. So individual services only need to know about the other services that they need to talk to. Nothing else needs to be known. So you can write very simple services yeah. that go out and just get that information. Um there's a little bit more complexity that you add to it as you start to scale. Um, and, and you have to kind of, you know, you have to obviously manage the system end to end and understand what's calling what and how it's being called. And, yeah. you know, so there's, there are, there is complexity there. Um, but if you have a bug in the, you know, the widget service, you go in and you say, Oh, got to fix the widget service. You go in, make your, make your change, compile your code, which now takes, you know, 30 seconds instead of, the three hours it took for your monolith to compile and you yep. test it. Yep. Oh, it, 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 and that bug is fixed now. It works end to end and you deploy it done. And there's a, there's a word for this that's escaping me at the moment, but um, there's this concept of like dead code that's left, left in your monolithic application, right? A function that's written that nothing actually calls, but you can't yeah. remove it because you don't really know if anything doesn't call it. And yes, there's ways to track that down. But um, I would imagine with a microservice, it's actually even easier to identify because there's a web service involved that presumably logs when things actually talk to it, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and, um, and, you know, that might make that piece a little bit easier to manage too. Right. And, and, and web service is the most common API that you would use. You, you would just set it, stand it up as a, as a, you know, on a web port, you know, typically yeah. encrypted uh, with, with, you know, TLS right. on it. Right. Uh, but that, it doesn't have to be a web service. Um, there are plenty of mon of, there are plenty of microservice systems that use, uh, proprietary communications between application, between the different microservices. There's ones that use you can use, uh, uh, you know, memory, you can transfer information in shared memory. Um, those are a tad bit more complex, but it's possible. Sounds a bit um, more complex, it, but I bet it would be it, it all depends. Uh, yeah. 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 Yep. When you say uh, shared all, it, memory, does that mean that it must be running on the same host or is there yes. some way to do that over uh, a network? Well, yes. If you want the fastest speed, it would have to be on the same host. Yeah. Um, if, if you're. Don't some network adapters have like a memory offload feature? Oh yeah. Yeah. Is, so you're, you're some, super, you're, some caching You're services super high do this end. too, where they can share like the, the the stuff that's cached in memory across several nodes. I remember doing this when I was dealing with Zimbra back in the yeah. old days. Yeah. So so your yep your super high end network cards, um, instead of using interrupts in the kernel to transmit data between the network card and whatever application needs to to read it, um, they have ones that will just drop that information directly into a shared memory space. And the application right. can read it right from the shared memory space. Uh, those are used very often for, uh, I mean, they're for, they're for extremely high speed uh, uh, applications. Uh, think like, um, you know, trading 
stocks, for instance. Right. Um, so like NASDAQ and, right. and Dow and everything that like those, those systems use that because it needs to be, you know, nanosecond uh, timing. And you can't get that if you're using interrupts to talk to the kernel. Right. Uh, so Memcached Memcache D shares memory. Yeah, that's that's systems. a different thing. I'm just it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's nothing more than a a a, a key store, but it's 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 yeah. in memory, so in theory, it's faster. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so uh, yeah, we've already gone down a rabbit hole there, I suppose, with sharing memory yes. across the network and whatnot. But uh, so I guess to summarize, right, a microservice you could say is either a function or maybe a small set of functions that have been broken into their own little application which you then interact with usually over a web service, but there could be other ways to make that happen. And it does a, sp right. it does a specific thing. Like this is my microservice that uh, gets credit card data out of the database to generate a report with. This is my yes. other microservice that when a charge comes in, it does the transaction. This is my microservice that, I don't know, uh, pulls in a user record when I need to display it back to the user, like that sort of thing, right? right. And then these are yep. all these are all sort of linked together by some front end, right? Maybe not front end, maybe, I guess front end would be the right word, that is able to call all of these backend microservices uh, via uh, generally some sort of an API, whether that's a web-based API or some other thing, right? Does that sound about yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, there's... Typically, there's a front end that talks to something on the back end, but yeah. from there, it can it can filter out wherever. So usually, have a front end, uh, one or more API uh, back ends that talk to that front end, um, and and I say one or more because sometimes you break out your front end into different functions, and you'll pass those APIs based on you know what function you're doing to a different back end, and then those back ends can sort of spider out to whatever they need. Um, right. They can use one or all of the services that are available. So maybe this is obvious to some people, but maybe it's not obvious to everybody. But uh, we said this is a cloud topic. Why is this a cloud topic? Why do microservices matter when you're talking about being in the cloud? Microservices matter. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessarily exclusively the cloud. It's um, not. I don't think it is either. And yeah. That's kind of what I'm no. what I'm needling at. Um, but why does it matter more the in the cloud? Cloud kind of brought this forward because it's cheaper to run, uh, depending on the cloud and depending on how you dole things out, it's cheaper to run a pile of containers than it is to run, um, you know, single servers. Um, and what you can do is have things that, so for instance, with, uh, with containers, you can have, you know, one or two containers that are running 24-7, which would be like your, your front end and your, your immediate backend that it talks to. Um, and then the other containers can be spun up when they're needed, depending on load. You know, you may have right. a set of them running all the time, but as, as, the, as the load increases, it spins up extras to do the load balancing. Um, so from that perspective, you can save a lot of money, tons of money. Yeah. Instead yeah. of running. Because that, instead of, yeah. that monolith, right? And stop me when you've heard this one, right? You've got you you have someone whose job it is, right, to figure out what that machine needs at peak load, right? And if that monolith doesn't scale based on load, it means whatever that peak load is is what you have to be ready for all the time. Right? Right. Now, if you've got an application that can be spread across several nodes, that makes it a little better, but you're still you've always got at least one box that's running all the time, consuming CPU and memory on like an EC2 instance, which is probably the most expensive way to use, in my example, Amazon, right? Amazon's right. Uh, AWS. Um, whereas with a microservice-based application, you may have one or two things that are up all the time, or maybe a handful of things that are up all the time, or maybe things that are being used all the time so they never actually get to shut down, but they're tiny. Theoretically, they're tiny. Yes, they might not be tiny, but as compared to that monolithic application, they are tiny, right? And... Um, it also brings in resiliency, I would say, right? Because it doesn't matter where that microservice is running or if you took it down for milliseconds to do a code update, because maybe there's a dozen other ones running, right? <laughs> and they just kind of get rotated in. Right. And that's that's part of the beauty of containers, right? You can do this like this this idea of draining from one pool and you know putting everything into a new pool. And as long as the old application, the old microservice and the new version of it 
perform, you know, they're compatible with each with each other. You don't even see the difference, right? But of course they'd be compatible. That's the whole point. Um, but anyway, if if like a whole region of AWS goes down, as long as you can spin them up in a different one, boom, you're back up and running, right? Now, right. that doesn't happen that often or shouldn't. <laughs> but this is what we were talking about with the lift and shift thing, right? If you take, if you're hand feeding a VM on... Uh, your cloud provider, and there's some outage that takes that VM down, it's not nearly as easy to bring that back up in a different region as it would be a bunch of containers that are just like, bang, spin them up. Right. I'm rambling already. But anyway, I think I was trying to get that across, right? So it adds adds a layer of resiliency, which is exactly what you need when you're on a cloud provider or on several cloud providers. I guess this doesn't, this might translate to several cloud providers. I don't know. It, it, it could. You can, yeah. you, you you know, depending on how you write your services and, and what tolerances you have, you could run, you could, in theory, run this across multiple service providers and be, you know, super resilient, you know, oh, no, all of Google went down. That's okay. It's still running in AWS and Azure, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. There's, there's drawbacks. I mean, so you, you, you have greatly simplified the services, Um and sort of brought them down to core code, but there's still complexities that can be there. So um, if you want it to be scalable, those services need to be uh, stateless or as stateless as possible, because now, you know, you may, you may want to spin up a dozen of them for load balancing purposes um, or, you know, one or two of them crash. You don't want that to interfere with, with what's going on. You want the customer or, you know, the, the customer to be able to see that. So you have to sort of be a little careful in how you write them. Um, additionally, there's 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 other challenges there where now instead of one big monolithic application that you deploy, um, you know, and let's say we're in a perfect world and you've deployed it by typing deploy app and it just does all the stuff for you. Boom, um, magic. Right. And and with a monolithic application, that that can potentially be done. It's it's usually pretty straightforward. Install the app and as long as the config's there, you're ready to go. Yeah. Uh, with with a microservices architecture, you're now deploying tens or hundreds of different services, right. and that gets that can get complex. Um, it doesn't have to. It depends. You know, it really depends on what you're building, and if you build it carefully, it, it can stay relatively simple. And I'd um, I'd imagine. Well, I, mean, I guess for new deployments, this may be different. But I, even for new deployments, right? I've I've I, I, I've never done this professionally, but as a hobby, I've done software development. And usually it's, okay, I have the core of my application written. Now, what does it need to do next, right? So I can imagine that in a microservices deployment, it would be, okay, these are my core services that I need. Let's stand those up. This is version one, right? Right. So I'm not deploying 10,000 containers or 10,000 microservices on day one. You know, I'm deploying a dozen. And then every new new feature I bring in might be, you know, another couple, right? So right. that complexity, um, unless you're like greenfielding the whole application. Oh, God, I used the word greenfield. They're, they're getting to me. <laughs> anyway, unless you're like nuking the whole thing and rebuilding it on a, on a new provider, a new platform or something, um, you're, you're not going to be deploying those thousands of containers all at once, right? Right, In but practice. there's still right. But even even if your if your application's out there, you've been running for a couple of years, and you know you've added services here and there. The complexity comes in where it's it's now an operational complexity. You know, yeah. talking between yeah. between services. You know, uh, we have an outage because you know communication between service A and service you know triple C suddenly stopped. Well, why? why? And and what do right. those do? And and understanding what each service does and what it should be communicating and orchestrating all that together. And, now, and how it this routes is, and where that thing's located, right. especially in a complex deployment like we talked about before. Oh, we're across several cloud providers. Okay, well, right. what if all of a so, sudden you can't route between two of them for some reason? <laughs> Something right. weird, so, like all your traffic got routed through China. <laughs> so, so in a monolithic application, if communication stops between one part of the app and the other part of the app, well, that's there's got to be a code. I mean, like trying to debug that can be that you're, you need code level debugging at that point because it's right. all internal. Right. If right. you if you lose communication between us, you know, one service and another service, generally 
the first thing that you kind of look at is, well, I mean, is the service running? It's the but firewall. Then, you know, the it next, must be the, the firewall. next thing is is connectivity. Like, is it? Did you lose a route somewhere? Is it? Is it a firewall issue? You know, like you start going down those paths of figuring out what's going on. And we've uh, all been in instances, those meetings, right? right? We've all been in those meetings. Yep. It's the network's fault. It's the firewall's fault. It's the application's fault. No, yep. <laughs> it must yep. be DNS. Or, or, you know, communication <laughs> is working and you're scratching your head trying to figure out why. And you find out like, oh, it's latency. It's, right. It's communications working, but right. it's taking too long and everything's timing out. So, so it, there's a little bit more complexity on the operational side. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think what I'm getting at there is uh, one, you need a varied skill set. still. It's not like you need just developers, right? You need people that can troubleshoot these different layers, especially if yep. you're doing it on-prem. If you're on-prem, you need like, you need expertise in all this stuff. You can't just like fire off your network team, right? <laughs> right. Uh, if you're in the cloud, it gets more complicated, doesn't it? Because you don't have insight into the network layer. Cloud providers are getting a little bit better at this, but yeah, I mean, generally, um, the only thing that you're seeing is the is your layer. So you know, you may you may see that you're supposed to based on your security groups and your routing tables and and how you have your your VPC set up or your virtual networks or whatever term we're using in in cloud these days. Um, all of that could be in place, and something could still not be working, and it could be something behind the scenes that's broken, um, which happens um but they've gotten better at identifying that that has happened and either routing around it and and having it you know sort of heal itself the auto healing networks have you heard that um or they're you know they've they've sort of come out and said like hey uh, there's a problem in communication between you know this and this you know these two sites or these services or whatever and, and they, they let you know uh it still happens but um they're a little bit better and faster at doing it now All right. So in a nutshell, that's microservices. <laughs> um, you've also got a couple other bullet points here. What is service discovery? The, uh, the, okay. the, the term sounds straightforward, but I feel like maybe it's not. <laughs> so you've got tens or hundreds or thousands of all of these different services running all over the place. Mm -hmm. How do you know how to connect from one to another? Um, in the in the monolithic world, in the 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 world before we you know we delve into this, typically you have given each one of these a name, mm -hmm. and you program into your config files. You know, uh, uh, you need to talk to this server over here on this port, yeah, and the that's database. how you get to that service. Yeah, right. Yep. But when you are dealing with tons of services that spin up and down on a whim automatically. How do you figure out where they are? Uh, that's called service discovery. Couldn't that just be could, like a could, load balancer somewhere, or does it have to be more complicated you, than that? You could, but how does the load balancer know where the services are that it's load balancing to? Oh, that's valid. Um, and and the concept here is kind of the same with service discovery. So load, the load balancers, at least the ones that I've, I've messed with, kind of work the same way, um, where you'll register a target with the load balancer. So um, if you want to load balance between, you know, five EC2 instances, you'll go into the load balancer and say, here, these are the five instances I want to load balance between, go for it. And there are, there are uh, mechanisms in the API that allow a server to come online and say, hey, I need to be a target for that load balancer. And then off it goes. It, it becomes a target and, um, and then it's available for load balancing. Service discovery works very similarly. So uh, if th there's, there's sort of two phases to this. One is, is when a service comes online, it reaches out to a well-known address. So, so you still need to have a well-known address of some sort, mm -hmm. um, which could be, you know, service.discovery. I mean, you're sort of running your own DNS at that point, so you can name whatever you want. So it reaches out to Bob and says, hi, Bob, I'm service X on this IP with this port. Um, and it can register multiple services. I, I, I am these 12 services or, you know, I have these different, you know, different ways of contacting me, whether it's, you know, I provide this service, but you can contact me over a REST API, gRPC, uh, you know, carrier pigeon, whatever. And it carrier registers pigeon. it with a service. Yes. It, it registers <laughs> it with a service discovery uh, system. 
And then when you're trying, when a service is trying to connect to something else, it goes out to that well-known address and says, hey, I need to connect to that service, uh, that specific service. I, I need to know where it is. And the service discovery will come back and say, yep, I know where that is. Here you go. And there's a million different ways this can work. It can come back and say, here's all of the instances of that service and sort of leave it up to the service to do that. Or it can come back and say, you know, just round robin through them. Here's that service. Here's, a, here's the same service on a different machine. Here's the same service on a different machine. Um, or it can use a, you know, intelligent load balancing, all, all sorts of different stuff. But the, the gist of it is that it hands you the what is effectively uh, an IP and a port for that service. So your front end comes in and says, uh, you know, I, I'm talking to the user. Uh, they want to they store some data in the database. Uh, I need to know where the database service is. The service discovery says, okay, here you go. This is the database service, and then that app will talk directly to that that database service, and it 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 may cache it um, so that it just is a little bit faster next time, mm-hmm. uh, or it may use the service discovery every time. I mean, there's there's lots of different ways to do it. it depends on kind of how you're programming it, what system you're using, etc. Uh, and and there's a ton of these different service discovery systems. Um, yeah, see, you've got a few. Some are built here. in. Yep. I've I've heard so, of NCD. I think I've heard of zookeeper but never seen it etcd of course i've heard of because that's like that's that's a core component of kubernetes right yep yep etcd is a core component of kubernetes it's i don't know if it was one of the first or i'm, I'm not even sure um zookeeper is another one uh uh from the apache organization um so of course it's written in java um why wouldn't it be i, I just remember headaches trying to get that working for whatever we were working with um the one that i'm more, the most familiar with is console uh, so that's from HashiCorp of okay. uh, Terraform fame. Um, so console, um, <clears throat> excuse me, console is <clears throat> a ser- console is actually a lot of different things, um, but it does service discovery. Um, and what you'll find with a lot of service discovery systems is that they also include, they typically include a uh, a key value store of some sort, um, so that you can use that for configuration. So you may yeah. you may be looking for a service that needs to have certain configuration when you when you you hit it, uh, and and that will come out of that that same service discovery. Yeah, the key value um, piece is the piece I was aware of, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. that's the piece I'm I, like I know of in etcd. I didn't know it did more than that. I I, I compared etcd to something more like uh, a config database. Is that wrong? No, it's that's it's right. Um, it just uh, from and again I I don't. I don't intimately know etcd, but it it does come up as a service discovery uh, application okay. as well. So, okay. I, I and don't, again, I, I don't I don't know that well either. I've I've yeah, I've I only tinkered with Kubernetes. I've never actually even run a cluster, to be honest. I, I haven't done enough with etcd to to sort of really mess around with it. A lot of that is is kind of hidden behind the layers and in, in Kubernetes, and just kind of works. Um, so, but my it, understanding is that it's relatively limited. Can you leverage something like this service discovery even if you're not doing microservices? I don't know why you would, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. Now yeah, that, I, you, now that you I've abs- said it, right? No, no, you absolutely can, and there are reasons to do it. So, um, for instance, um, Windows servers, Windows servers mm-hmm. uh, are junk, and uh, when it comes to containers or Kubernetes or whatever, it, it's kind of a pain in the ass to deal with them. Um, but there are lots of companies that have written Windows services. Mm-hmm. And one way to sort of keep things even across the board. So, so if you if you write your application, your Windows application to reach out to your service discovery and register itself, you can use the same service discovery mechanisms across the board instead of having to say, okay, go to service discovery. If you need anything, unless it's these Windows services, in which case we've hard coded all this information. Oh, okay. So you can put sort of your like your legacy services behind the same thing, yeah. and then as you're working on maybe improving the way you deploy your application, it's just like changing it at the service discovery level instead of changing it at the code level or something like that. Right. Right. And you could you could deploy your service discovery system across multiple clusters, multiple, multiple, you know, whether multiple clouds, multiple clusters, there's, 
there are timing issues and latency and other stuff you need to deal with. And there's ways around it and how to, how to handle that. But you can deploy this in a huge area and use that same mechanism to jump from one, one system to another, depending on what you're deploying. So if you have uh, some crazy big data system that you just had to use Azure's latest big data stuff with, mm-hmm. and the majority of your system runs in, I don't know, AWS or Google or whatever, you can have that Azure piece register with your uh, service discovery. And then whenever something needs to talk to it, it, it'll know, you know, doesn't, doesn't really need to know that it's on Azure. It just knows that it's over there. Go talk to it over there. And it, it works just like, you know, uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's basically service discovery is nothing more than like dynamic DNS really. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, just I, kind of a, there's, I, I was seeing similarities there in my head, yeah. but, uh, I, this, this sounds like it's probably easier or maybe more efficient to manage than DNS. Yeah, that's why I said that. Like timeouts and all kinds of stuff to deal with, right? Yeah, this is this is why I said it's more like dynamic DNS. So, so dynamic DNS, you kind of register. I mean, Windows still uses it, so you kind of register in and say, "Hi, I'm here, and here's my address." Um, And it adds it into the DNS, and then it's available. This goes a little further, where you're able to do load balancing because you you may you may deploy a a database service. Uh, and the first one comes online and says, "Hi, I'm the database service. Here's my my you know a- address and port." Uh, and then you know ten others come online because you've had to scale or something. Those ten come in and say, "Hi, I'm also the database service. Here's my address and port." And it it lists them under one at least in console. It lists them under one heading, database service, and it says, "Here's all the servers or all the all the services that will respond for that." And it does other things. It does health checks. Um, it's, it does, you know, you, you can set what kind of load balancing you want. Um, so it's, it's relatively intelligent and it's always checking them. So it, it, as long as you have health checks on, it'll always check them. So that way, if one of them goes offline for some reason and doesn't deregister itself, um, systems like console will go, Oh, Hey, that's offline. I'm not going to hand that one out anymore. Right. I'm just going to mark that as down until it comes back. It won't unregister it. Um, I don't, maybe you can set parameters for that. I'm not sure. It'll leave it in there so that maybe later on it'll come back and it'll be usable again. But, you know, until it does, it, it's marked as, yeah, this was here, but not available anymore. So there and this is more or less for clarity's sake. Um, it sounds like there's a whole lot of similarities between service discovery and a, little, a load balancer. But I think the core difference here is that a load balancer stays in the middle Right. Yes. So like a request comes to the load balancer, load balancer hands that off to the back end service and it keeps track of what back end services are still responding and how quickly they're responding and which one should probably be the most efficient to send the next request to and whatever. Whereas service discovery sounds more like um, a directory service where I call up the yes. phone directory or I call the person at the switchboard and they're like, oh, there's 10 people that can deal with that. Um, I'm not going to connect you to them. I'm going to tell you how to reach them. Right. Does that sound more like it? And then my client or my service will say, "Okay, for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to send all my requests to that one uh, because I know that's one. And if it stops responding, I'll go back to the the service discovery and say, who else is there? Right. So it's more like I'm handing out who to connect to instead of I'm connecting you to. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. And a a load balancer, depending on what kind of load balancer you're using. but if you talk about t- typically it's a web based load balancer, um, a load balancer can also do route matching and, and header matching and, and all sorts of other craziness. Service discovery is like, where's where's the Bob service? Oh, it's over there. OK, cool. Thanks. And yeah. yeah it's like, OK, I've got 20 things registered to the Bob service. So I'm going to give you the next one in the list. Here you go. Have fun. Yep, exactly. OK. All right, and then you've got another heading here for service mesh. Have you have you covered service discovery enough here? I think that we've got that. Yeah, yeah, we, we've we've beaten that one that, that to death. Okay, so um, what's service mesh? So service mesh is service mesh is basically the same general idea as service discovery. So it typically includes the service discovery piece, um, but it adds more. It adds uh, it. it it allows you to route 
through the service discovery system where it will carry the traffic from end to end uh, and all, typically offer you some extra benefits. Um, so I, I have here, uh, I've written down because of, of the routing end to end thing. I sort of, it's kind of like the old, um, and, and this is where I date myself. This is, this is kind of like SMDS or frame relay or ATM um, and even SDN where you're sending traffic in and magic is happening in the middle and it comes out the other end. So okay. you as the service don't need to know where the other end is or how to get there. Uh, all you do is say, I need to send this traffic to this service. You hit service discovery and say, this is where I need to go. This is the traffic that needs to get there. And service discovery says, gotcha, and takes care of it. So it is a load balancer. Um, you just described a load balancer. Yeah. I mean, it is. <laughs> it is, but with, with extra benefits. Or, um, or like a so, web application proxy, perhaps, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean it. It can. It has some security benefits as well. So you can, you can use it to do policy. Um, yeah. Uh, you you add so a lot of a lot of the, the service mesh systems automatically encrypt and do end to end mutual TLS automatically for you without you having to add it to your application. Would you? So your service. It, would you call it a next generation <clears throat> load balancer? <clears throat> No, because that's a marketing thing, Mister Marketing. I would I just, call it service. I just I remember back to, mesh, the, sort of, back to yeah. the days of next gen firewalls, right? And it was like, oh, good. So you've taken my firewall and made it needlessly complicated. Thank you. Yeah. So this is a this is a next next gen. Okay. Okay. The next after gen, the after after next gen, whatever. Uh, um, turbo turbo gen. Yeah. I so I, I don't I don't have as much experience with these. Um, I've seen them in action, but I haven't. I haven't stood one up. I uh, haven't really needed to. Um, yeah, I, the I did. I I was trying to poke around with Kubernetes um, on DigitalOcean has a Kubernetes service where they basically they'll spin up the cluster for you, and then you can put services on it. Um, right. And their tutorial used it. I, they didn't refer to it as service mesh specifically, but that's essentially what it was. It was like, this is how things reach your application, no matter what's behind it, right? Your containers or whatever are behind it, but this is like the end point. And I think that's, that's pretty much what, uh, what you're describing. Yeah, it's here. very, it's very similar. It has, it, it can do other things. Um, a lot of the, like the, the basic, uh, point to point connectivity, uh, the, MTLS point-to-point -point connectivity, the encryption, uh, all of that is sort of like that's entry level these days. Like if it doesn't do that, it's don't bother. It's not worth looking at. Yeah. Um, on top of that, there's they're adding in a lot of stuff for monitoring the traffic and making sure that you know it is what it's supposed to be and like uh, statistics and and all sorts of extra bells and whistles. Like that's sort of the application management operation lifecycle stuff is is all built into that now yeah i mean at this point uh if you're not doing tls encryption like it kind of has to be there right as as of a couple years ago right if, if you have a website up that's not using tls on the front side it like google won't even send traffic there sure that's 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 you're killing standard. yourself right so yeah yeah if if your back end stuff isn't doing it you're kind of missing the point <laughs> right. Well, the the back end stuff you want to do it because you want your I mean you don't want anybody to be able to listen in right. on what's going on. That's that's my point, right? Um, so if, if you have to go to the effort of doing it on the on the front side, you might as well do it on the back side as well, right? Unless yeah. you know, I mean like traffic that stays in the box, I guess, is different, but traffic that's right. that's traversing a network should be encrypted. Well when you're when you're dealing with microservices and clusters, it's it's leaving the box. Right. Um yeah. yeah. The 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 difference is this. Um, and, and it's a very important, just in my mind, very important distinction. When you're doing TLS on the front end, whether it's mutual TLS, which is sort of not something you typically do with a website, um, or it's just you know the the typical SSL encryption that we all see, which is TLS these days. But you know yeah. the, the little lock icon in your in your web browser, there is a very 
robust, long-lived, developed for a very long time, battle-tested piece of software there that's handling the TLS for you. So right. Apache, Nginx, whatever, like th- that's somebody wrote that it's handling it a hundred percent and right. it does it very well. And it knows all of the security gotchas and it, it's been it doing just it does for what 30 needs to be years, done. Right. Yeah. Right. When you're dealing with a backend service, um, you're adding that in yourself. Now you're not right. You're not, I mean, unless you're insane. Um, and please you're not don't do writing this, algorithms yourself. You're, you're, you're not writing the algorithms yourself, but you are implementing that TLS encryption on whatever you're using in your service. So you're bringing in the library and interacting with it is what right. you're saying, right? Uh, yes. And it is very easy to implement those libraries the wrong way. Um, so what happens is, I mean, it's not, it's not, rocket science to do this. Um, but you know, it happens a lot where people implement it, just implement it the wrong way. Um, so what the, what things like service mesh can give you, um, is a mechanism by which you can get that, that encryption, that, that MTLS quote unquote for free and not have to deal with writing that stuff yourself. And the way, the, the way that it, my understanding, um, the way that it does this is it uses uh, it basically uses uh, sidecars um, in the server that you're in, in the, the, the node that you're on, that your application is on, your, your service is running on. When it sends the data, when it sends the communication that it's trying to get from end to end, it sends it inside of the server. So it'll send it from one pod on that server to another pod on that server. That second pod is the one that handles all the encryption. So you may be in the clear from pod A to pod B. Right. But from then on, from pod B to the other end, it will handle all the encryption, MTLS, the whole nine yards. But And then when it passes it back to the service on the other end, if that service doesn't handle encryption or whatnot, it will decrypt it and hand it in the clear again. But pod A so to the pod only way B to, is essentially in memory on the host you're on. It's not not progressive wire, right? So it doesn't necessarily need to be encrypted unless you're hyper paranoid. Right. So so unless somebody has access to that server directly, like if they have if they're on that server, right, um, they're not going to be able to intercept that. That's the way I handle it for my own. Well, it's it's not the way I handle it. It's a similar concept to how I handle it for the stuff I run in containers because I don't have a cluster. I just have a box on DigitalOcean where Nginx is terminating TLS, and then it hands it off locally to the backend container. The backend yeah. container doesn't leave the box, right? It's all local on the same machine. Right. So I don't right. encrypt and, and, that piece because it doesn't seem like it's worth it. It's not worth the effort yeah. to try to and, get a cert on there, It's not, and it's not worth the security benefits that I might have. You don't have to lifecycle the cert. No, right. There's a lot of reasons to do it. Right. And, and you'll see, like even, even if you're using like AWS's load balancer um, and talking to whether it's containers or an EC2 instance or whatever, a lot of times you'll see people won't put uh, TLS encryption on the server itself. They'll just let it, you know, plain text to the load balancer. And that's relatively safe. You're inside of AWS's network. So the only way that that's going to get intercepted is if somebody's inside of that network. Not something you can guarantee, but it's, it's a lot safer than right. trying to connect to a load balancer, you know, that's in Google and you have to you know, go over the open internet. Like, you know, at that point, like, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, there's, it depends on what your risk profile is. I did. I did that once because I had a site that I was hosting here and I needed to get it to a third party, but I didn't control DNS for it. And the person that did control DNS for it, I couldn't get a hold of. So I proxied it from here to like AWS or something. <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. It's just like this will work. And then when when they finally when I finally got a hold of the person, I was able to to do it. That was back when I had that little web host that I was running on the side when we were trying to shut yeah, it down. Right. They've done the stuff like that all the time. Like you do yeah. what needs to be done at the time. You just yep. you just need to know what your risk profile is. That's all. Yep. yep. So and so that that was encrypted though. They had a they had a cert on the server, right? So I just TLS encrypted from my engine Xbox here to there, but um, because because yeah. I knew it was going yep. over the open internet, you know. Right. Right. The, the only I mean, if you do if you do MTLS at that point, then it's it's a little more secure because now 
the endpoints have to register with each other and and it's encrypted right. and you know it's the the right guy and whatever so Yep, that's service mesh. All right, and all of those all of those mechanisms work together with microservices, which is why I sort of put right. them in there. Right, right. That was that's that's kind of that's the whole reason we talked about these extra two pieces, right? Because they kind of work together with the microservices piece, right? So if you have yes. microservices, you're probably going to benefit from service discovery, and you're probably going to benefit from service mesh. In fact, they may almost be required in in like a modern deployment today. Yeah. So. And I didn't want to interrupt you, but apparently a zombie just ran across the screen. Yep, we had a zombie. That's because somebody subscribed. Thank you for subscribing. I think it was Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. If you're actually watching live, that's even better. <laughs> 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 Maybe uh, that actually is a great, a great point. So, um, well, maybe we'll talk about it in the chat. I'm going to leave myself a reminder to talk to talk about what I just thought about in the chat because we're done with the main topic. Unless you had more to say. I think we've nope, covered it nope, pretty that's, well. That's microservices and service discovery and service mesh. And I expect emails telling me how, how wrong I am and, and you know, correcting me. Well, I mean, if you're not doing it wrong, are you really doing it at all? No, no. And if I don't do it, if I, if I keep doing it right all the time, I'm never going to learn anything. Yeah, so. right. You got to do it wrong first. I do it wrong first. All right. So this is the end of part A of the show. Um, we're going to go to a break. Uh, if you're listening to part A, you should probably tune into part B because that's the fun part. That's where we talk about stuff we got going on. We're going to talk about the news. We're going to have more drinks in us. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the A part isn't fun at all. Just so you can skip over that. Yeah, we just right. Put that right at the little but, teaser at the beginning. This is the A part. Skip it. It's this boring. This is the A part. We're just going to talk about boring work stuff, <laughs> boring technology stuff. Um, anyway, um, right. So if you've listened to part A and you want to hear part B, you should, if you're listening like after the fact, you should go check out whatever you're using to listen to your podcasts and look for part B of episode 127. If you're watching live, we'll be back in a few. If you want to, if you do want to watch live and you're listening audio only, uh, check us out on YouTube and Twitch. Just look for the Iron System in podcast. You can find us on the socials. Um, and yeah, we're going to go to a break and we'll be back. I don't know. It shouldn't be too long. I don't think it'll be too long. Last time I said that, we were gone for like 15 minutes because we got busy talking about something on the break. Me, you, and Mark. <laughs> no, I'll, just, I'll just be quiet this time. That's fine. Just just be quiet. Just be quiet. All right. Uh, here's the thing I'm looking for. All right. So we will be back in a few, folks. We'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs>